Australia has a long and complicated relationship with alcohol and its regulation. From the teetotaling temperance era to the six o'clock swill, right through to the present day, and in the present day, the Northern Territory Government has just announced that alcohol bans will return to town camps and remote communities in central Australia in response to that spike in alcohol-related crime. But, of course, the issues in Alice go much deeper than just alcohol. But this latest response to problem drinking is part of a much larger story about alcohol and the law in Australia. Enter stage left, Dr Liz Taylor. Liz is a senior lecturer in urban planning and design at Monash. And she's researched the history of Australia's anti-alcohol measures and how these debates have shaped and still shape the places where we live. First of all, welcome and congratulations. Let's go back to the 19th century. When did the temperance movement first hit our shores? Well, pretty early on, Philip. So as you said, there's a long and complicated relationship between the state and alcohol in that governments are often trying to crack down on drunkenness but also benefit from taxes levied on it. But in terms of temperance and an organised resistance to alcohol, it's thought to have originated in the 1830s in the UK as a uh, temperance, so less drinking and, in fact, moderation and everything. And pretty early on, uh, 1835, the New South Wales Temperance Society was founded and shortly thereafter in several other states. And initially, these temperance societies were about moderation and they're really targeting heavy alcohol, so spirits and wine and beer weren't so much on the agenda, but they quickly morphed into much much more kind of hardline stance, capital T, total abstinence or teetotal of societies. And they started to think more beyond just the individual and some of the health issues associated with alcohol and much more about social issues, economic issues. It's funny, isn't it? We've all heard the word, the term teetotal forever, but it's the first time I've actually learnt of its origin. So uh, temperance advocates sought to highlight the impacts of alcohol on what, crime and health. Yes, so they really hit their stride in Australia and other countries, uh, the US, UK, Canada, a lot of the Anglosphere in the 1880s, and there was a lot of build-up convention around that. And it became a, a kind of binary issue, wet and dry. And the dries, who were prohibitionists or uh, teetotalers, were focused on alcohol as a cure for a whole range of individual and social problems. And these range from uh, crime, what they called lunacy, uh, degeneracy, social um, conflict. Uh, a lot of uh, Anxiety. A lot of the kind of movement came actually from women and the Women's Christian Temperance Organisation. Well, I, I want yeah. to look at women's roles shortly, but it's but, amusing, isn't it, to think that wet and dry survived as terms to describe, well, factions within the uh, Liberal Party. You'll find there's a lot of these hangover, uh, pun intended, but little language quirks and terminology and shorthand that comes from the temperance era that we still use with our really thinking about it. And, and part of my research is looking at how the regulatory kind of hangovers are still there as well. But what I'd like to also say about the temperance movement in the 19th century, they're very focused on creating an alternative world, alternative social structures. So they weren't just about 
getting rid of alcohol, or they were very interested in doing that, they were trying to build up a world without alcohol. So there are a lot of big reformers involved in it, uh, Quakers, um, the Salvation Army, some of the friendly societies, so IWF. I, I also remember from mm. childhood the Independent Order of Rechabites. That's another one of the friendly societies and uh, quite influential in uh, signing up young people to pledge to never drink alcohol and also a big part of the temperance uh, coalition. And It's a very things. messy coalition, though, isn't very it? Very much so. From collectivists mm. to fundamentalists. Yes, and even liberals or early kind of uh, classical liberals, so people that were focused on the, at the time, new ideas around property rights and uh, municipalisation, so local elections and ratepayers, also became involved in the temperance campaign, not for the same reasons. And so it was a lot of uh, strange bedfellows who were some, some of them capitalists, so big land developers were often temperance campaigners. They were building uh, coffee palaces, so alcohol-free pubs that were quite elaborate. They were building estates that were alcohol-free, holiday resorts, Cadbury's and Roundtree's, the big chocolate uh, industrialists. They were Quaker families that were also big proponents of uh, temperance, and they built entire towns that were free of alcohol. So they were, on that one that one hand, you had that industrialist, capitalist involvement, and you also had quite working class movements like Salvation Army came up from really the experiences of people that were uh, exposed to the effects of, of poverty primarily, but also of drinking, and they established bans and kind of alternatives to alcohol and were engaged in some fairly heavy conflict around, um, I guess, civic amenity and establishing, you know, public places that weren't but focused on alcohol. And charmingly, there was also the development of very ornate water fountains. Yes. So, of course, um, at the time, there weren't that many options for things to drink that weren't beer. And water for a long time wasn't really that clean. So if you look around Melbourne and, and other cities, you'll see these beautiful old water fountains. There's some one in front of the uh, Victoria Market. There's another one in front of Melbourne University that uh, are dedicated by temperance organisations. In one case, the Women's Christian Temperance Organisation, and I think the other one is just a Melbourne Total Abstinence Society. So it was about building civic infrastructure. And they also did libraries and public halls and things like that. So it was, uh, and they also are uh, supporters of other drinks. So coffee, uh, Coke, Coca-Cola was originally um, marketed as a temperance drink, had cocaine in it, I think, but that wasn't the their big focus. Um, and breakfast cereals are just a whole world of kind of day-to-day and also urban features that temperance societies were trying to build up as a new world and at the same time trying to crush the world that was associated with heavy drinking. We're listening to the sober words of Dr Liz Taylor, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning and Design at Monash, and it will come as a shock to my listeners to hear this confession. I am a virtual, if not total, teetotaler. Now, national prohibition never happened in Australia, but some towns did go completely dry, as you said, including the nation's fledgling capital of Canberra. I can hear a sharp intake of breath around the nation. Yeah, so the temperance movement were focused on total prohibition in Australia and in the US and other countries. So that was 
their aim, but it had a coalition, and this is what I've often been researching, there was a, a focus also on giving communities more power to declare their own area dry or to try to create towns and suburbs that didn't have hotels in them as for some people it was kind of intermediary step and for others it was the point was to actually have more localism in those rights so we have a few quirky ones in australia uh, mildura and renmark were both irrigation towns founded by the chafee brothers who were american teetotalers and they uh, bought into the idea that workers would be and the whole town would be better off without alcohol so they were dry until a local option poll in 1918 allowed them to have uh, pubs again. So that's an old one. Ocean Grove is a resort town in Victoria that was founded as a Methodist summer hotel with a coffee palace, and that was dry until 2015. And, yes, the nation's capital, uh, King O'Malley, I understand, was pretty influential in this, and he was also involved in the campaign against barmaids. But it, it was dry on inception, but it was voted wet, I assume, by the politicians who couldn't stand it in 1928. So it didn't last long, but it was certainly a few dry years there. But meanwhile, Queenbian did a thriving trade. Yeah, that's always that irony, the border towns. When you have a dry area, what happens at the, the edge of those areas? You point out there were still some pockets of Melbourne, which remain dry to uh, this day. And I'm thinking of, uh, well, Box Hill and Camberwell. Yeah, so the the story of how they came to be dry is, is representative, I guess, of the worldwide uh, temperance movement and some of the legislation it sought to get in, and also some of the idiosyncratic kind of long tales of that. Nana Wadding and Box Hill were both um, licensing districts in Victoria in 1920. And at this came after about 40 years of temperance campaigners uh, seeking the right of a local community to vote uh, dry, complete uh, no licence in their area. And it took a long time. And in the interim, you had something called the Licence Reduction Board in Victoria was set up to actually close excess hotels. And they closed thousands of hotels in Victoria, many of which you'll see the kind of vestiges in goldfields towns today because they had well in excess of what was deemed the appropriate number, which is one for every 250 people. So that process happened first. And then 1920, you had a statewide poll where every uh, 218 districts could vote to reduce uh, no licence or to stay wet. And only uh, Burundara, sorry, and Nutterwarning got over the line. And they stayed in some format of dry for a hundred over 100 years. And I was just fact-checking. There were lots of kind of incremental changes to the system for the dry zones. It was for a long time, it was a system where every new liquor license, uh, all residents had to vote on whether or not to grant it. And that got scaled back to only pub and club licenses a few years ago. And I, as I understand it, the final death knell was put in at the end of 2021 by the state government. But you speculate that uh, people in, uh, well, Camberwell and Box Hill might still support the ongoing restrictions. That's that's very much seems to be the history of it and the evidence of it is that people in those areas really supported the polls. They supported the, I guess, the local rights it gave them, the sense of uh, veto power, and they certainly didn't vote out the controls themselves. They were very much um, taken away by the state government, and that's kind of part of this um, tension around a lot of alcohol controls, including local option in other countries, is that difference between a local area deciding something or a centralised government deciding something. So it seems as though Campbell and Boxell would have liked to have stayed dry. 
Now, colonial governments here and across the empire instituted race-based prohibitions for Indigenous people. When were Indigenous people allowed to consume alcohol? Uh, So I think each state and territory brought in their own um, restrictions on Indigenous people drinking, so specifically excluding uh, Indigenous people from the right to drink as early as 1838. So it was a very early colonial project to exclude Indigenous people people from drinking as part of a kind of paternal system. Um, I think that the actual right to drink came in in the 1970s, so I'm not 100% sure of the actual year. And at the sort of similar time time frame to that in the Northern Territory is when the uh, liquor licensing there, 1979, it went from having a, an automatic dry uh, status for remote communities to a system where communities could apply to the, the licensing commissioner to be declared dry, um, wet, or have a canteen system. And that system has been in place uh, up, up until the 2007 intervention. And we should point out that uh, the marvellous Marcia Langton has written further on this history of alcohol laws for Aboriginal people. Now, in Australia, and this sounds like an odd metaphor, the high watermark for the temperance (laughs) movement was the the notorious six o'clock swill. Tell us about the swill. Right. So... The high water mark, to use the analogy, in the US was the Volstead Act, so total prohibition in 1919. But Australia didn't get there. What we got instead in terms of victory for the the dry campaigners, so to speak, was during the First World War, uh, all states and territories brought in six o'clock closing. Initially, as a patriotic measure, it was partly a response, actually, to a few embarrassing incidents with troops, but also... um, put forward as a way, this is how we're going to win the war. And, and it did come off the back of the king, the English king saying that we have two enemies and uh, the Germans and the drink and the drink's the, the tougher one or whatever the word was. So a lot of patriotic fervour was like, we need to close licences, uh, hotels at six o'clock rather than it was more commonly 10 or 11. In fact, any um, hour-based restrictions on hotels were, were a result of the temperance union because previously it was just sort of all, all hell for leather. Um, and it was meant to be temporary. And in Victoria, six o'clock closing stayed in until 1967. So a very long period in which you could not buy any alcohol after six o'clock. It's interesting. And that was called- it's predictable, mm. of course, that mm. morality groups uh, lobbied government for its continuation. But I learned from you that so did trade unions, seeing night drinking as the enemy of a healthy family home. It was very much, I mean, it seems bizarre now but the logic was that if you could only drink until six o'clock and it was a very gendered uh, thing hotels were predominantly where men drank that men would drink and then go home not drink as much and then go home to their family so this would be a way of cultivating a more healthy stable productive family life so a lot of supporters for it and it took a, a long time I guess for people to see that maybe it wasn't working out as intended. Uh, Certainly by the early 60s, there was something called the Phillips Inquiry saying, well, you know what, maybe, just maybe we could have a slightly different relationship to alcohol than just drinking intensely for one hour because that's what was happening was that uh, rather than going home sober to their families, men were going to the hotels, drinking everything they possibly could within that hour and then the term swill, I don't know who coined it, but referred to this kind of absolute mess of uh, body fluids 
that were associated with that time of day and having to clean up. And it was certainly not civilised form of drinking for, for a long period of time. But there was also a sense that, well, this is the way Australians are. And if we liberalise anything, then things will just get worse. And there was even an effort in uh, for the 1956 Olympics there was a referendum a campaign to extend drinking hours to 10 o'clock so that Melbourne could look slightly more worldly when the Olympics came, and that failed, and the only place you could drink after 6 o'clock was Essendon Airport because it's uh, Commonwealth <laughs> land. Would you link 6 o'clock swill, swilling to uh, binge drinking? Yeah, I mean, I haven't researched it, but that seems to be uh, the, the way that I guess the liberalisation process that started from the 1960s started to look critically at the effect of that kind of licensing where you had uh, intense drinking, where hotels did very little other than, I mean, they had a radio droning in the background, I think, but they just were places to drink one of two types of beer. And it didn't seem to be associated with a healthy or moderated relationship to drinking. And this is part of a an ongoing debate around is there a healthy or moderated approach to alcohol and often people looking to Europe that we could just have a couple of glasses of wine with dinner and go to the theatre. And so there's since the 1960s been a push, I guess, in in most licensing systems in, in Australia to try and reflect or accommodate that kind of drinking rather than binge drinking. But it's a very delicate dance because, you know, liberalising one thing also can backfire um, in, in further unexpected ways of being drunk. So local option, local veto, permissive bills, they were happening all over the world, weren't they? Yeah, certainly in the, what I'd call the Anglosphere. So the countries that really um, took up local option or forms of it were uh, colonial countries, Canada, um, Australia, New Zealand was a big leader in it as well, and also Scandinavian countries had versions of this. And as in Australian states, it started, the push started in the 1880s and the 1920s. Some interesting examples, uh, New Zealand's dry system was pretty important in that country pushing for early um, votes for women because they wanted to, uh, the, the association of women with the temperance movement was quite strong and there was a sense that if we got votes for women, they'll be voting against the hotels. So they had some dry, they had a dry system for several decades and they had several dry areas as a result of that. Canada had a similar system and they had several uh, provinces. Prince Edward Island was total prohibition for 50 years, I think, and parts of Ontario, uh, Toronto stayed uh, dry until the 2000s. Believe it or not, Scotland had a dry areas policy. Often you have this sort of binary where the, the heavier the drinking, the more the reaction, I guess. So while England never got a, um, a local option law in, they camp there were campaigns for it for decades and Scotland did actually get that system where in certain towns were voted dry and, and retained that ability to, to vote. Um, the system was usually you had to get 60% of local residents and that was defined usually by ratepayers and, and hence the emphasis on trying to get women on onto rate books as well. Um, 60% of residents voted to close or otherwise uh, restrict alcohol, and you'd usually revisit the poll every few years to check that it still reflected now, uh, people's temp preferences. temperance yeah. may seem, well, a bygone era now, but alcohol controls have remained a very active debate. Even in places like Sydney's King's Cross, where I've lived on and off for the last 40 years. <laughs> You're a teetotaler and you live in 
King's Cross. So this is sort of a interesting uh, contradiction there for some, I suppose. But yes, that uh, is one of many examples of where um, periodic reintroduction of pretty heavy-handed controls on alcohol, whether the number of hotels, the hours you can buy it, or other kind of specific things around security, keep coming in. And what I've really found in researching um, place-based controls, particularly on alcohol over the last, I guess, 100, not me personally, but the last 150 years, is that there's a tendency to sort of laugh at what were called wowsers. A wowser is a was the nasty word for dry campaigners. It was a, basically a party pooper, fun police, to laugh at these things as being sort of old-fashioned or what a crazy idea to regulate alcohol. But the fact is we continue to have a very uh, complicated regulatory system with regards alcohol, uh, almost every facet of alcohol, its strength, where you can buy it, who can buy it, when you can buy it, is regulated and yes, you have things like uh, incidents of violence, like in King's Cross, that prompt a further crackdown um, and lockout laws. And we even have in, in Melbourne has a freeze on light, late night licenses still uh, that stems from those uh, one punch laws uh, over a decade ago now. So those kind of reactions to violence and these kind of perennial problems associated with alcohol, they never really go away. And there's this perennial forgetfulness, I guess, that these are old debates and old solutions that keep coming back even in a liberal democracy where we like to think that we don't need these kinds of controls. Well, when I head back to King's Cross tonight, I will be passing through an area where about a third of the shops are shuttered and closed. Now, there are many similarities between the old local option policies and the alcohol bans returning to parts of, of Alice and Central Australia, aren't there? Yeah, I see them as extremely, as I don't know if they're knowingly similar, but there's certainly so much in common around the mechanism and the spirit of it as well, this idea of localism and local rights, that it shouldn't necessarily be a central government that decides um, what an approach to alcohol should be, that maybe a local community has a say in it. And it would be interesting to see if you had a local option poll in King's Cross, whether they'd have the same controls there. So um, there's this tension, though, around different levels of government and different levels of rights that uh, is characteristic of, of alcohol. It was in the temperance area and it is now that there's a kind of danger sometimes around local option, local controls, where, say, Camberwell, the locals there really enjoyed having that right to decide who had a, had a liquor licence. But there's a kind of backside to that is that it can be quite exclusionary and it, it does limit um, individuals' rights to, to drink alcohol. And alcohol, of course, has all sorts of impacts on others' health uh, and more broadly. So there's definitely a lineage between the dry zones of Camberwell and Toronto and, and other parts of the world and the, the local communities in the Northern Territory. It comes with the same kind of baggage and uncertainty about who gets to decide when. But I think there's a good track record to thinking about alcohol controls at a local level. It's certainly what early temperance campaigners, one of their kind of legacies was that. You think about their legacies sometimes as the silly stuff, the uh, six o'clock closing, which did seem to be a failed exercise. But the sort of democratic merit of local controls, I think, is still worth considering. 
Thanks, uh, Elizabeth. Dr Elizabeth Taylor, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning and Design at Monash University. And if you drink, don't drive. Oh, you can read more about the legacy of Australia's anti-alcohol laws in her book, Dry Zones, Planning and the Hangovers of Liquor Licensing History. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.